It's from 1 Samuel chapter 19, verses 1 through 7. And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants, that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hands, and he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. Father, we give you glory. We ask that you would speak to us through this chapter in your word, Father, that we would submit ourselves to you and to your word, that you would speak truth to us, convict us, encourage us, Father, and may we give you the glory in the end. In your name, amen. Well, once again, we get to dig into God's Word. We get to spend time hearing His truth. The temptation, as always, when we read God's Word, God's Word is to take what is said, put ourselves in the place of it, and, and think that it's about us. As somebody gave me a coffee mug the other day, or a couple years ago, it says, the Bible is not about you. No, the Bible is not about me. It's about God. It's about Him. It's about what he does and who he is. And then in the last couple of weeks, we looked at David and Goliath. Again, I got a gift this morning of a coffee mug. I must, people must know I love coffee. And it's a picture of David and Goliath, and it says Goliath, and then over David it says, not you. So you are not David. I am not David. We cannot just pick us up by our bootstrings and then fight the Goliaths in our life. That is not the point of that passage because David is the anointed king and I am not the anointed king. You are not the anointed king. The point of that story is that God fights for the anointed king to kill the enemy in order to save the people of Israel just as God anoints Jesus Christ to fight the enemies of sin, death, and Satan to save the people of God so that they might have salvation and not be slaves to the enemy any longer. Jesus is David. You and I are not the saviors of the world. And then last week, we looked at how Saul works really, really hard to try to make David fail, but because he's the anointed, he just continued, David continued to succeed and succeed and succeed and succeed. Have you ever had one of those days where it seems that everybody and everything is against you? That no matter what you do or what you say, everything falls apart before it even begins? Well, Saul is having one of those days, like Groundhog Day, over and over and over again. David defeats Goliath. 
Everything goes well for Saul. He's happy. He loves David. The people of Israel are delivered from slavery. Saul has added another man of valor to his entourage, but almost immediately things start to go downhill for Saul. The women attribute tens of thousands being struck down by David, but only thousands to Saul, and he becomes jealous. And he says, what else can he have, David, except the kingdom itself? And so Saul attempts to kill David by sending him into battle, only for David to defeat every enemy, having success wherever he did, whatever he did and wherever he did it. And the love of the people for David grew, and Saul's fear of David at the same time grew. Because Saul knew that God was with David and not with him. Saul had become an enemy of David. And because David was God's chosen and anointed king over Saul, Saul had become an enemy of God. Just as David's success was due to his being anointed king, so Saul's failures were due to his being an enemy of God. And his continued failure would just soon become frustration. And that's what we're going to look at today. The rest of chapter 19, we're going to read it from verse 8 all the way to 24. And you can hear and hopefully see the frustration of Saul continue to grow and grow, starting in verse 8. And there was war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. And then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, if you do not escape with your life tonight, Tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through the window and he fled away and escaped. Michael took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, he said, she said, he is sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to see David saying, bring him up to me in the bed that I might, may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with a pillow of goat's hair at its head. Saul said to Michael, Why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Michael answered Saul, He said to me, Let me go. Why should I kill you? So now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him that Saul, what Saul, all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived at Naoth. And it was told Saul, Behold, David is at Naoth, in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying and Samuel standing at the he at, as head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent, another, uh, sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah, and came to the great well that is in Seku. And he asked, where, where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they are at Naoth and Ramah. And he went there to Naoth and Ramah. 
And the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naoth and Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes. And he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets. Okay, back at the beginning. Saul makes it very clear to his son Jonathan and all his servants that he wanted to kill David. But Jonathan and David had a relationship forged in the heat of the battle. We a heat of battle. We saw that last week. They were they were brothers that were deeper than just kin. They would sacrifice themselves for the sake of one another that only brothers in arms can do for one another and understand. Jonathan cannot help himself but speak up in David's defense. Why would the king sin against David? Because David hasn't done anything against you. David's only done good for you, Father, and the Lord has saved Israel through him. You used to love him. Now you seek to kill him. Why would you spill innocent blood? Jonathan's words convinced Saul to spare David's life, and it seems like Saul has turned in acceptance of David. Finally, whew, it's all over. So through Jonathan, Saul's plans to kill David are frustrated. And everything's going great. But then Israel once again has war with the Philistines. David marches to battle. And he defeats the Philistines with a great blow so that they fled before him, it says in verse 8. David's success, along with the harmful spirit sent by God, that's a whole other sermon. (laughs) God sends a harmful spirit upon Saul. His success and the spirit that is tormenting Saul to the point that he once again seeks to kill David. By the, but this time, he takes matters into his own hands with a spear. He doesn't rely on other people, and he tries twice to kill David, and David eludes him both times before fleeing to the safety of his house. But his house is anything but safe because Saul sends men to spy on David, making, him, making sure that he's actually home so that in the morning, Saul can go over there and kill him. But Michael convinces David to flee, delaying her father long enough for David to get away. And so through Michael, Saul's plans once again to kill David are frustrated. When he hears that David is with Samuel only a few miles to the north, he sends messengers to capture and return David so that Saul can put him to death. Man, he's just a determined guy. But when the messengers come upon Samuel at the head of a group of prophets, the Spirit of God rushes upon the messengers, and they too prophesy. And so Saul sends another group of messengers, only for the same thing to happen. And then a third group of messengers, and the same result occurs. Saul finally decides to handle things himself, as if that's going to make a difference. For only the Spirit of the Lord to rush upon him. He prophesies, he strips off his clothes, and he lays naked all day and all night. And you go, What? That's weird. Anybody else think that that's just weird? 
what, what in the world does this mean? And why would this be in God? I mean, this seems like, a, like, why do we need to know this? Well, we do. There is a, a reason. There's significance to Saul's nakedness. Yes, it happened to the messengers who went before, because it says he too stripped off his clothes, but they only mention Saul. So when you see that in Scripture, you got to go, okay, why? Why are we told about Saul in more detail than we are about the messengers? Well, the significance points to his being stripped of the kingdom of Israel by the Lord. Just as Jonathan's giving of his princely robe last week, remember he, he meets with David, he, he uh, loves David as his own soul, and he takes off his princely robe and his sword and his armor and he gives it to David as a symbol to say, you are the anointed king. You are the true prince of Israel. I am not. I will serve you. Well, here, not willingly, mind you, Saul is stripped, is stripped of his kingly robe as a symbol of his being stripped of the, to, of the throne of Israel. And he lay in his nakedness all day and all night just to drive the point home to him and to everyone around him. But through Samuel, ultimately through the Lord himself, Saul's plans to kill David are once again frustrated. And Saul is exposed, literally and figuratively, as an enemy of God. So what was really going on in David's head and heart throughout this ordeal, right? I mean, we hear this story, we go, okay, well, what is David's response? How does he respond to God? He's constantly eluding attempt after attempt on his life. People are stepping up to help him, yes, but where is, where is David's mindset in all of this? Now, 1 Samuel doesn't tell us, but David is a psalm writer. He writes songs, and there just happens to be a psalm written by David while the, spy, the men were spying on him in his house, seeking to take his life. So if you have your Bibles, if you've got a Bible app, turn to Psalm 59. Now we're going to read the whole psalm. If you don't have a Bible, if you're, just, if you're more of an auditory person, I want you to listen, this is a, a song, this is a poem written by David, and I, and I want us to hear what David says at the beginning and how it kind of shifts and changes. Like, listen for, he speaks of me and I, and then it shifts. The pronouns shift to, to they and, and them, if you want to say. So listen to that shift and what David is asking of God in the middle of this. And the reason I know that this is a, that we know that this is a psalm written by David during this time, because it says right at the top, a victim of David when Saul sent men to watch his house in order to kill him. So we know this is, he's sitting in bed and he's writing this song. Or at least this is what's in his mind and he writes it down later. That's a possibility too. But let's listen to these words from David. This is a, a, pray, a prayer of his to God. Deliver me from my enemies, O oh my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil and save me from bloodthirsty men. 
For behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me. For no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord, for no fault of mine, they run and make ready. Awake, come to meet me and see. You, Lord God of hosts, are God of Israel. Rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. Each evening they come back, howling like dogs and prowling about the city. There they are, bellowing with their mouths, with their swords in their lips, for who they think will hear us. But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. O my strength, I will watch for you, for you, O God, are my fortress. My God in his steadfast love will meet me. God will let me look in triumph on my enemies. Kill them not, lest my people forget. Make them trotter by your pow- totter by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. For the sin of their mouths, the words of their lips, let them be trapped in their pride. For the cursing and lies that they utter, consume them in wrath. Consume them till they are, till they are no more. That they may know that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. Each evening they come back, howling like dogs and prowling about the city. They wander about for food and growl if they do not get their fill. But I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. O my strength, I will sing praises to you. For you, O God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. David cries out to God to protect him from his enemies. And this is an astounding request because the enemies of David's, uh, in David's life at this point is not the Philistines. It's Saul. And it's the men Saul sent to kill him. He pleads for God to deliver him for God to rouse himself and to punish his enemies. And did you hear the shift in the psalm? David begins to, he's speaking of himself, and he's using his personal enemies of Saul and his men, but then it shifts to Israel and her national enemies. Verse 5, it says, all the nations. The enemy prowls about like a feral dog, roaming the city streets for food, growling and howling without a care and without a fear of anybody stopping them. But David asked for God to consume them with his wrath without killing them until they are utterly powerless. I mean, think, think about what he's asking. He's basically saying, punish them, but don't kill them so that they can suffer over and over and over and over again. That's, we don't pray that way, and we don't feel like we should pray that way, right? And in some ways, we're kind of right. We're not David. But that's what he's asking. Utterly consume them in your wrath, but don't kill them. Just make them suffer. Why would he say that? Praise God again. He gives us an answer. Verse 13, he says, why, why consume them but don't kill them? That they may know that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. It's not about revenge. It's not about, 
I want to see them get their comeuppance. It's not about David, and it's not about Israel. This is the heart of the psalm, and this is the heart of, of 1 Samuel chapter 19. The enemy of David, who is God's chosen anointed king, is the enemy of God. David's enemies, the enemy of the anointed king, is the enemy of the Lord in heaven. And the Lord will frustrate the enemy's plans for destruction of his chosen. And the Lord will frustrate the enemy's plans to destroy his chosen and David and Israel find strength, protection, and steadfastness and, his, and love in his, let me say that again, find steadfastness in his love, in the Lord's love. Let me explain that maybe a little bit more. Kind of came out wrong. If the enemy of David, God's chosen one, is the enemy of Israel, God is going to frustrate every plan to destroy that anointed one, to destroy David. Saul and his men are not going to succeed in killing David. And we will see over and over again throughout 1 Samuel that that rings true. But the enemy of Israel, God's chosen people, is the enemy of God too. And the Lord is going to frustrate their plans, not to just destroy try to destroy David, but to destroy the people of Israel. And David and Israel do not find their strength in themselves or in their greatness or in their awesomeness. They find their strength in the Lord and the Lord alone. And even though the enemy seems strong, the enemy is weak in comparison to the power and the rule of the Lord. And while God consumes David's enemies or Israel's enemies by his wrath, and God's enemies by his wrath, they will know who's really in charge. They will know that God rules in Jacob. That's just another word for Israel, God's chosen people. Because he is the sovereign ruler of everything. Sovereign ruler, sovereign means his power and his rule is over all things. You see, the Lord rules over his chosen people. Israel was not chosen because they were the mightiest or the largest or the most wise of all the nations, but because God loved them. That's why they were chosen. I chose you because I love you and because I promised Abraham I would do it. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 8, this is what God tells the people. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than all other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you. And is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. As Samuel tells the people in 1 Samuel chapter 8, the Lord is their king. He rules over them. God's wrath over the enemies of his chosen people is a reminder to the people, to Israel, 
lest they forget. He says it in, in Psalm 59, verse 11, lest they forget. Do this lest my people forget that He, the Lord, is their strength, that He is their shield, that He is their fortress and refuge, that He shows them steadfast love, that He is their King. But it's not just that the Lord rules over His people. He rules to the ends of the earth. The whole earth is is under His rule and reign. There is no place that is hidden from His sight. He is not just the King of David and Israel, but He is the sovereign ruler over all nations and all people and all the earth, including His enemies. He consumes his enemies in his wrath until they are no more so that they would know who really reigns as king. See, chapter 19 is not about David. It's not about Saul. It's not about, oh, Michael let him out the window. That's kind of like Rahab, right? Well, what about the idols? So there must have been idols that Michael was worshiping because she used one to, like we get lost in all of those details and those are great things to talk about, but that's not the point. The point isn't even about Saul's frustrations. The point is God is the ruler of all things and as an enemy of God, he rules over Saul. Saul wants to destroy the anointed king. And God says, no, it's not going to happen. Well, maybe if I do it this way, no. What about this? No. Okay, fine, I'll do it myself. No, it's not going to happen. And you're going to spend the next five, six, ten chapters or whatever it is trying to do the same thing over and over again. Like what's the definition of insanity? Or at least that's what people say is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. Like Saul's not learning over and over again. He's against the Lord. He knows he's against the Lord, and yet he continues to try to kill his anointed one. Saul found out that there is nothing that he can do to prevent his king, the Lord's king, from taking the throne of Israel. All of his plans were frustrated because the Lord made it so. It wasn't because Saul was incompetent or David was great or Michael just outwitted her dad. Saul may be king at this moment, but he is not the anointed king. Saul may be king, but he's not the king. Just as David is Israel's representative before God, so is Jesus Christ for the church. Now, you've heard me a lot, I say, like, this is not about us, we can't put ourselves in David's place. This is the one exception only because David makes the exception in Psalm 59. He puts himself as the representative of his people, the nation of Israel. So this is the one time we can kind of make that, okay, so how do we, how do we understand if David is representative of the people and that God will be his strength and his shield and they will rest in his steadfast, he will rest in his steadfast love so the people of Israel can do the same. How do we do that with Christ, because Christ is our representative before God. For those who are saved by God's grace, not by their works, just like Israel was not chosen because they were so awesome, 
the church is chosen because God chooses them, because he loves them. Again, that's a whole other sermon series, let alone a sermon. But that's what his scripture says. Those who are saved by his grace and not our works, by faith in him, not in ourselves, as our Savior, treasure, and Lord. So those, those are three significant words. Savior means I am a sinner. It keeps me separated from God, and I need someone to save me from the wages of my sin, which is death, eternal death, in the present, away from the presence of God. Something needs to happen. And Jesus Christ paid the price of death for me. So he is my Savior. He saves me from the consequences, eternal consequences of my sin. But he's also my treasure, which, is me, which means I would sell all the things that I have in this world to keep Christ. He is the most precious. He is the most valuable thing. And when he speaks, I listen. When Katie and I were dating my wife, when we were first dating, should be true now, but when we were first dating, I held every word of hers. I just sat there and listened. Like, I want to know who she is. I wanted, I wanted to spend all my time with her. I, she was the most treasured thing in my life, which was a problem, and that came up, and we had to deal with that, and that's a whole other story that I don't want to share up front. But that's what it means to have Christ as our treasure. Is he the most important thing to me? Should he remove all other things in my life, including my wife, would I still hold him as the highest thing that I have? He is my treasure. And then he is my Lord. He is my king. He commands and I do. Not because I feel some sort of obligation to make him love me, that if I just obey his commands, then he's going to love me more. No, he's already chosen me because he loves me. And I serve him because I love him. I want to make him happy. I want to see him pleased with me. And so when he commands me, and I read the word of God, and it, it says something that I don't like, like submit to me, obey all of my commands. I follow him because he's, he is more important than my wife and my kids and my family and my relationships and my job and the church that I'm a pastor over my reputation, my feelings. He is more important. And so I follow him because he is my king. That's what it means to be a Christian. Our culture today likes to minimize it, right? To like, well, if you just go to church and you're a nice person, then you're a Christian. Or my dad was a Christian or my mom was a Christian or I went to church growing up. So that means I'm a Christian. That is not a Christian. That's somebody who walks into a building and sits in a seat. A Christian is someone who has Christ as their Savior and their treasure and their Lord. Now, at all different points in life, they're all, you know, we all struggle with that, even as Christians, right? Sometimes God reveals like, yeah, I'm not the most treasured thing in your life right now. You need to fix that. Your wife is more important to you than me, and that's not right. Because I have the power to remove your wife from your life. 
And if I did that, would you still love me? We all struggle in those areas, but we hopefully grow. We grow in each of them. We are not God's people because of our great intellect or our great strength, but because He has chosen to love us. That is all we have to stand on as the church, as the people. But this also means that we have enemies. Because the unbelieving world hates Christ. Jesus says this, John 15. He says this to his disciples, and it rings true for us today. John 15, verses 18 through 21. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they would also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. This is what Jesus is saying. And I was going through a really hard time in life. Just felt like I was just being persecuted left and right. Um, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, and the words of my mom ring true. Mark, they killed Jesus. What makes you think you deserve any less? If they persecute Christ because he speaks the truth, now if they're persecuting Mark, you, Mark, because you're a jerk, well, that's a whole other issue. But if you're speaking the truth and you're faithful and you're loving in saying that and not arrogant and conceited, But if you speak the truth and they desire to kill you, should we expect any less? Because Christ was sinless. If there's anybody in the world who said they did everything exactly right and perfect and righteous, it would be Christ, and they hung him on a cross for it. Should we expect anything less? There will be those in our lives and in our culture, including our own family, who will lie and wait for us, who will stir up strife for us, and perhaps even seek our lives. But the day is going to come when the world will consume them until they are no more, and on that day, they will know that God rules over his people to the ends of the earth. For he is our strength. He is our fortress. To him we run, at, we, to him we run as our refuge, and we will sing praises to his glorious name, and the world will know who we belong to. It looked as if Satan had won. As Christ was hung on the cross, he had finally killed the Lord's anointed king who could deliver God's people from every calamity and every trouble. He had finally defeated the Lord, but three days later, oops, (laughs) the tomb is empty and the enemies of God, sin, death, and the devil were defeated. The king lives The Lord's people are saved and the enemies of God are given notice that he is the ruler over his chosen and over all the earth. This is why communion is reserved for the people of God. For those who have believed in Christ as their Savior, treasure, and Lord, this is why we celebrate communion. 
We don't require you to be a member of Elm Creek Community Church, <clears throat> but we do require that you be a member of the family of God. That by God's grace, through faith, you have believed, and so you are counted among the people of God. If you believe, you are a child, and you are welcome to join us at the table. But this is a table of remembrance. Now, we have to say this every once in a while. The, the bread and the drink at that table have no magical components to it. This is not some sort of ritual that suddenly we are cleansed of our sins and we're made right before God and now He's going to be happy with us. No, that is not what Christ called this. This is a table of remembrance. No one is made holier. No one is made a child through communion. Instead, Christ says, remember what I have done. Every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, do it in remembrance of me. That's why we say that at every communion service, to remind us this is a remembrance. Christ has saved us, not the bread and not the juice. And so if you are a believer, you are welcome to join us. If not, we ask you refrain from joining us. We take this very seriously. Now, we don't have communion, please. We don't have a little person, uh, person sitting back there, are you a believer? Are you a believer? Are you a believer? We don't, we don't have that. Praise God we don't have that. <laughs> you have to check your own heart. If there is sin in your life as a believer that you're holding on to and you're refusing to repent, we ask you refrain until the next time we do communion. Take this seriously. If you're not a believer, refrain from joining us. Nobody's going to judge you. Nobody's going to look at you and say, oh, I wonder what that person did. If they do, again, come and talk to me and the elders will sit them down and we'll do church discipline. That's the way it works. And be corrective. But this is a chance for us to worship and praise God. This is a celebration of the salvation that Christ gave to us. Not because we were the mightiest, not because we were the most numerous in all the world, but because He loved us. And it is a reminder that He is ruler over all the earth, including you and including me. So when you are ready, we're going to walk around in the back. You take a cup, take the bread, take it back to your seat. And then together, once everybody is seated and everybody has the elements, we will sit down together and take this and remember together as God's people, as one family, to worship, to the worship and praise of our God. So whenever you're ready, go ahead and make your way up there.